0: Surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The grass withers and the flowers fade. I remember when I was in seminary and I had just started a new job at my church. And one of the first weeks on the job, my boss, Gavin, was out of town. And he'd asked me if I would borrow his truck to pick up some students from campus and to bring them to church. So Sunday comes along, I get his truck, I go and I pick up the students, drop them off at church, and then I head around back to park his truck. Now, I was not used to driving this big old truck of his, and somehow, and I don't even exactly know how it all happened, but somehow I get all caught in the fence, And all I know is that at some point during this debacle, I hear that dreaded nails-on-the-chalkboard sound of me creating two long scratches alongside his formerly pristine truck. And when I heard that sound, my gut sank. And on top of that, I look up and I see there's the church administrator watching the entire thing. My heart was racing. Did I just ruin my relationship with my boss on one of my first weeks on the job? Could I repay him for this damage? At the time I was a seminary student living mostly off of student loans, so I wasn't sure if I would be able to. But I knew there was no way around it. I had to tell him what happened. So I get out my phone, I text him, tell him what happened, apologize, and offered to repay him for the damage. And then I waited. I'll tell you what, the silence of the waiting was even worse than the sound of the scratching. But eventually, he replied. And this is what he said. I actually looked it up for this sermon. This is word for word. No problem, David. These things happen. I hope the morning went well. That's it. No, okay, yeah, let's talk about it a little bit when I get back from my trip. No, uh, okay, well, yeah, if you could pay to get it fixed, that would be great. Just, these things happen, I hope the morning went well. And here's the proof that he really did forgive me and didn't hold this against me. A few weeks later, he again asked if I would borrow his truck to go pick up students from campus. I mean, can you believe it? But that's the kind of guy that he is. He forgave me freely and didn't give it a second thought. We worked together for the next few years, and we're still friends to this day. Now, in the grand scheme of things, scratching my boss's truck isn't even that big of a deal. It was an accident that could be quickly remedied by a quick trip to the body shop. I've sinned intentionally against God and against others in far worse ways than just this past week. But that morning is etched into my mind because I experienced then the blessing of forgiveness. I experienced the relief of guilt and shame and the joy of forgiveness. And that's what our passage today is about. It's about the blessing of those who have been forgiven by God. So let's dig into it. The first two verses are the main point of the psalm. Take a look. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, notice first what the psalm doesn't say. It doesn't say, blessed is the one who does not sin. Blessed is the one who has his life put together. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The psalm knows our condition. It knows that we all come here today with things for which we need forgiveness, things far worse than scratching our boss's truck. It knows how we spoke to our partner or to our kids or our roommate this morning. It knows what happened the other night. It knows that secret thought. There's no pretending that everything is fine. There's no downplaying the significance of our sin. It's not, blessed is the one whose sin isn't too bad. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And there's something incredibly liberating about that. Because we don't have to pretend to be someone we're not. We don't have to put up this front to appear more holy than we are. In fact, the last line of verse 2 says that we have to do the exact opposite. It says, Blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is one of the things that our culture today does well. We place a premium on being genuine. We hate pretense and we love honest vulnerability. That's the kind of sincerity that this verse has in mind. Blessed is the one who does not hide his sin or confess disingenuously or dishonestly. Blessed is the one who brings all of his mess and ugliness before God and openly and genuinely confesses his sin. Blessed is that man, for he will be forgiven. In the next section of the psalm, David shares his uh, his personal testimony to all of this. We don't know the exact situation that led David to write this psalm, uh, but in this case, it doesn't really matter because this is an experience that can be common to all of us here today, regardless of the specific sin. And he starts out by describing how he felt before he acknowledged his sin to God, when rather than acknowledging his sin, he kept silent before God. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David uses some very vivid metaphors here. The first thing he says is that when he sinned and was silent before God, it led to this inner groaning, and it felt like his bones were wasting away felt like everything that was holding him together was deteriorating to nothing and he was about to collapse into a heap on the ground. One way we might describe this feeling today is to say that something is eating us up inside. And in verse four, he says that God's hand was heavy upon him and that it dried up his strength as by the heat of summer. He felt like a tree without water, withering away in the hot, blistering, summer sun, like he couldn't go on any longer. Today we might say that we feel crushed by guilt. Do you ever feel that way? I know I do, all the time. I have that thought again. I say those words again. I do that thing again. And as soon as I realize it, I feel the crushing weight of my guilt. I feel deeply ashamed. And when we have these feelings, there are any number of ways that we could respond. We're in this sermon series called Winning Your Thought Wars. And the reason we're discussing forgiveness today is because we all have thought patterns that lead us to respond to these feelings in a particular way. And oftentimes we respond in ways that, rather than leading to the blessing of verse one, lead to the misery of verses 3 and 4. We need to learn to overturn those patterns in our lives. Maybe when you're ashamed, you respond like David does here. You try to hide your sin from God. You go silent before Him. Your prayer life goes to zero. and This affects our relationships with others, too. Maybe you perpetually keep other people at a distance because you're afraid of what they might think if they truly knew you. You try to hide from God and from others. Or maybe you respond to these feelings of guilt by trying to dismiss them, saying that they're the result of antiquated, even oppressive social conditioning from which we need to break free. Or maybe you try to suppress these feelings with alcohol or other drugs. Or maybe your guilt leads you to lash out. Maybe when someone sees something ugly in you, you get defensive and blame them. Maybe even blame God for the situations in which he put you. Or maybe you recognize your guilt, but you try to appease that feeling by seeking to prove yourself. Your guilt leads you to drive in and and just dig in deeper to try to do better next time, to try to make amends for the wrong that you did. And so I speak unkindly to my wife, but rather than acknowledging that sin, I just tell her, you look beautiful this morning. Or maybe you feel guilty for your sin and so you resolve, you know what, I'm going to read the Bible every morning this week. Those are good things to do, certainly. But if you don't first confess your sin, then it can be a way to seek to pacify your feelings of guilt without actually addressing the real issue. But none of these strategies ever really work, do they? Sooner or later, we're back in the same spot. We can't hide our shame from God. It's like the scratches on that truck. There's no hiding the damage, and the church administrator saw the whole thing anyway. Try as we might, we can't ignore the weight of our guilt. Sooner or later, we're back to feeling like our bones are wasting away, like our strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. But isn't it so good? that this isn't where the psalm ends. We don't have to spend our entire lives in the misery of verses 3 through 4. This psalm ends with rejoicing. And so the question is, how do we go from the agony of verses 3 and 4 to the joy of verse 11? How do we go from feeling God's hand heavy upon us to experiencing the blessing of God. The key is in verse 5. Take a look. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you. So simple. The turning point of David's experience is when he confesses his sin before God. He goes from silence before God in verse 3 to speaking to God in verse 5. He goes from trying to cover his sin, from from trying to ignore it or hide it or dismiss it, to acknowledging his sin and letting God cover it. Do you remember that from verse 1? It said, blessed is the one whose transgression or whose sin is covered. Not by us trying to hide it or dismiss it, but covered by God, forgiven by Him. The key to experiencing the blessing of God, to going from inner anguish to joy and gladness, is to acknowledge your sin before God. And the first part of that is to acknowledge your sin. You have to know your sin and recognize it as such in order to confess it before God. And for some of us here today, that's the easy part. You feel the weight of verses 3 through 4. You know your sin and you feel the shame of it. But for others of us, in order to experience the blessing of God, we must first realize our sin. Maybe you don't identify with verses 3 through 4. You don't feel that weight, or you don't know what to confess before God. If that's you, then the first thing you need to do is to examine yourself. Ask God what it is you need to repent of. If you need ideas, just ask the person sitting next to you right now. Ask your friend or your partner. I'm sure they'll have plenty of ideas. The turning point in David's experience is when he acknowledges his sin before God. And this change from silence to speaking, from hiding to acknowledging, is what brings the change in the last line of this verse. There are so many wonderful things about this psalm, so many wonderful lines. But this last line is probably my favorite in this psalm, and one of my favorites in the entire book of Psalms. At what it says. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's what I love about that line there's no space between David's confession and God's forgiveness. As soon as you confess your sin to God, in that instant, he forgives. There's no hesitation. No delay. For those of us who have been in the church for some time, it's easy to take this for granted. But this is some radical forgiveness. This is not like when we ask for forgiveness from a friend and we have to wait to see how they'll respond. And when I texted my boss, I had to wait 45 agonizing minutes for him to reply. With God, there's no waiting. There's no dot, dot, dot in the text, no pause for him to think. As soon as you confess your sin, in that instant, he forgives. And there's no qualification. There's no, I'll forgive you as long as it's not too bad. I'll forgive some things, but not that. There's none of that in this verse. There's no uncertainty of how God will respond. God promises in this verse that if you confess to him even your most unspeakable sins without the slightest delay, without question, he will forgive. It's like a floodgate. God's forgiveness is like the water building up on the other side just waiting for us to open the gate. And as soon as we do, as soon as we confess our sin to God, His forgiveness comes flooding into our hearts. Incredible. But now maybe you're thinking, well, that's great, Pastor David, but you don't know what I've done. If you truly knew me, if you knew the darkness inside, then you wouldn't be so sure about that forgiveness. But here's why I am sure. Because the forgiveness that God offers in this verse actually has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with what you have or haven't done, but has everything to do with what God has done. And while I don't know what you have done, I do know what he has done. God has revealed something to us today that David only longed to see. We know now that the answer to this psalm is Jesus. And here is what I know that he has done for you. Jesus experienced the heavy hand of God that we might experience His mercy. Jesus groaned and cried out in agony that you might shout for joy. Jesus was shamed that you might rejoice. Jesus' strength was dried up that you might experience life. Our sin is not like those scratches on the truck that can be remedied with a quick trip to the body shop. This is a costly forgiveness. But because He so loves you, Jesus willingly gave His life So that because of what he has done, you can be forgiven no matter what you have done. Jesus counted your sin as his own, that your sin may not be counted against you. And so you need not carry around this burden of guilt any longer. Don't let these feelings of guilt and shame lead you to be silent before God. Let them drive you to Him. Acknowledge your sin to Him that you might experience with David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And that's what the second part of this psalm is about. Having tasted the blessing of God's forgiveness, David wants us all to experience the same. Take a look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone, not some, everyone who is godly, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. This isn't just something for David. All who call upon God who acknowledge their sin before him, he will forgive. And not only that, as astonishing as his forgiveness is, his blessing goes even further. Take a look at how this verse continues. It says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Not only does God forgive you when you confess your sins to Him, but He also preserves you from trouble. as a hiding place for you. My son is uh, almost a year and a half old, and lately he's been really enjoying playing hide and seek, especially when he's supposed to be uh, getting ready for bed. Now, in our one-bedroom apartment, there aren't that many places to hide. I have a pretty good idea of where he's going to be. And not only that, but I can also usually see his arm or his leg or something sticking out from around the corner. That's not the kind of hiding place that God promises to be for you. When God promises to be your hiding place, he's promising to take you to a place where ruin can never find you, where even your darkest thoughts can't destroy you, where even the strongest pressure cannot crush you. And here's why God does that for you. If you've confessed your sin to God, then the hardships of life are not God's punishment for your sin. They're part of the reality of a broken world, and while God may use them to discipline you and to make you to look more like His Son, it's not because He looks upon you in anger. When God looks upon you, your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you experience not the wrath that your sin deserves but the blessing that Christ's righteousness deserves. When God looks upon you, he delights to bless you as his beloved son or daughter. And so when the flood rotters rush towards you, threatening to carry you away, he is there to make sure that they will not reach you. Even should you, like Job in the Old Testament, lose your livelihood, your family, your friends, and your health, God will not allow that to carry you away. He will be a hiding place for you. He will preserve you from trouble. And He will surround you with shouts of deliverance. And believe it or not, this blessing continues even further in verse 8. And the speaker changes in this verse. These words are now spoken directly by God, and I'll show you in a moment uh, how we know that. But take a look at what more God promises to you in this verse. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you With my eye upon you. Here's the blessing of the one whose transgression is forgiven. He does not leave us in the misery of our sin, wasting away in guilt and shame, but freely forgives our sin. And not only does he freely forgive our sin, but he preserves us from trouble and is a hiding place for us. And not only is He a hiding place for us, but He teaches us and instructs us in the way that we should go. Not only does He forgive us when we sin against Him, but He shows us a better way. He doesn't leave us wandering, stumbling around in our sin. He has given us His Word to show us the way to a new, better life, a life free from guilt and shame and filled with joy and peace. And I uh, told you I would show you how we know this verse is spoken directly by God. One of the ways we know that is because uh, elsewhere in the Psalms, God promises to do the same thing, to teach us and instruct us. But we especially know that these are God's words from the last phrase, with my eye upon you. This isn't David telling the Israelites that he will always watch over them. It's God promising to always be near, to guide, and to care for you. He didn't just drop a book from the sky and leave us to figure figure it all out on our own. He's here to instruct you. He's present to counsel you through difficult times and decisions. His eye is upon you guiding you in the way you should go. And while he likely won't speak to you in an audible voice when you ask him what job to take or whether or not to marry that person, he's given us in his word the character and priorities that should guide our decisions. And through his word, and through the wise counsel of others whom he puts in your life, and through his orchestrating of events, He will lead you in the way that you should go. The next verse tells us how we should respond to this great promise of God. Take a look at verse nine. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Do you know what a bit and bridle are? I didn't. I had to look it up. Uh, But the bit and bridle are what go on the head of a horse. They're the headpiece that the reins connect to that then allow the rider to control the horse. And a horse without it, say a wild horse that hasn't been broken or maybe a particularly stubborn horse, isn't going to stay near you. It's going to do everything it can to get away from you. And what this verse is saying is that instead of being like that, let us freely draw near to God. Instead of running wildly away from Him, let us cling to Him and so experience His blessing. It's very similar to what we saw in verse 6. Verse 6 says that rather than your sin leading you to run and hide from God, let it drive you to Him. Acknowledge your sin to Him that you might experience His forgiveness. And here in verse 9, it says that rather than kicking against Him like a wild horse, draw near to God that He might teach you in the way you should go. So when you're unsure of what path to take in your career, don't be like a wild horse running around without understanding. Quiet your soul. Seek God in prayer. Ask Him to give you wisdom, to direct your steps. and He promises that He will lead you in the way you should go. The next stanza brings the psalm to a close. It starts with verse 10, which summarizes all of the reasons that we should draw near to God. Now, take a look. We should draw near to God, for many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What a wonderful promise of God that is. If you trust in Him, He will surround you with His steadfast love. When you feel the crushing weight of your sin, He forgives your iniquity. When you feel overwhelmed or hopeless, when you feel overcome with sadness or fear, He is your hiding place. When it feels like the floodwaters are up to your neck, He surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. And when you're unsure of what to do, he counsels you with his eye upon you. Everywhere you turn, his steadfast love is before and behind you. That's God's promise to you in this verse. And with a promise like that, we can't help but rejoice. Look at how this verse or how the psalm ends, verse 10. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What an incredible transformation from verse 3. Remember where we started. David goes from groaning all day long to shouting for joy. From feeling God's hand heavy upon him, to rejoicing. From feeling like his bones are wasting away, to being glad in the Lord. And the turning point was when he acknowledged his sin before God. And as much as it blessed me to experience my boss's forgiveness... It's nothing compared to experiencing the blessing of God's forgiveness. Let us draw near to him today that we might experience with David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Let's pray. God, surely it is true that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We come to you today filled with all kinds of guilt and shame. And we know that when we are silent before you, it feels as if our bones are wasting away. Thank you that we need not stay silent, for your Son has covered our sin. By your Spirit, help us to acknowledge our sin to you, that we might experience the blessing of your forgiveness. Do this for the sake of your Son, we ask. Amen.